Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Bibles, John chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. We finally reached verse uh, chapter 15. I actually did a brief like recap to see how long we have been in the book of John, and it finds its way all the way back into uh, 2017. Um, and so it has been such a joy walking through this book, though. My, my goodness, the Lord has just encouraged me and strengthened me through this, and so I hope that it's done the same for you. Um, John chapter 15 is where we will be. Um, we are dealing with a passage that I think is one that, that really has been taught rather regularly. When we consider the I am statements, that's where we find ourselves this morning. We've already covered many of them, including I am the light of the world, I am the, the bread of heaven, the list goes on. And each of these statements that the Lord Jesus gives is given specifically to highlight who he is. The primary intention really first and foremost is to state that he actually is the I am, that he is divine in nature. Now the whole premise of the book of John has been trying to communicate to us that there is one who is truly God and truly man. Those who believe on him can and will actually have eternal life. John has even made clear to us what actual saving belief is by articulating that faith is not just the idea of an intellectual ascent to something or even understanding something to be a historical reality, but instead a faith is dependence, trust, relying, and, and casting really yourself onto someone. That's the whole premise of everything that we've looked at really in the book of John. And then we hit chapter 15. And John is going to drive home a point that is vitally important for us to understand. You've heard us make reference to it time and time again, regardless of who would be preaching that day. We speak often of union with Christ. Union with Christ is perhaps one of the most forgotten doctrines in today's world, in the church today. It kind of has become overshadowed by different language that we use or something of that nature. But when we come to understand who we are, and when we come to understand not only who we are, but we come to understand who we are in, genuinely the beauties of the Christian faith begin to come to fruition. When we look into this particular statement where Jesus will say, I am the true vine, what we ultimately, ultimately see is the Lord Jesus communicating to us who we are in. Now, that's really what I want us to understand this morning because all of the benefits that we see flowing, continuing in chapter 15 are only found in those who are actually united to this true vine. And so the sermon in a sentence this morning before we read the text is this, and I did make the joke to a couple of our elders that it perhaps could be more clearly stated as the, para, the sermon in a paragraph. So I'm gonna read it a couple of times to you. Jesus is the true vine, that is cared for by the Father and all those who are in him likewise receive his care. Second sentence. All those who are nourished by the Son and cared for by the Father bear fruit. So just one more time here. Jesus is the true vine that is cared for by the Father and all those who are in him likewise receive his care. Secondly, all those who are nourished by the Son and cared for by the Father will bear fruit. 
So I would ask you then, brothers and sisters, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? John chapter 15, starting in verse one, we will make our way through verse six. I would remind you that this is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, this is truth with no mixture of error. John chapter 15, starting in verse one, says this. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we come to you seeking the work of the Spirit. Lord, that he would take these truths and apply them to our own hearts that we might see the splendor and the joys of being united to Christ. But Lord, that we might also count it the most woeful of things to not be united to him that it would cause us even to examine ourselves, but Lord, even in that, that we might see fruit that you have produced in our life and that you might be the one who is worshiped for that fruit, that you might receive honor, praise, and glory in light of it. So Father, we come and I come confessing to you frailty and weakness, but Lord, once again, I am reminded of that sweet verse that Paul cites. Lord, that we can boast all the more gladly in our weakness that Christ's power may rest upon us. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most important things that we do as we come to this passage is ask a a question. What is it that the disciples heard when they heard Jesus say, I am the true vine? Now, if you look at the verse in and of itself, it says, I am the true vine. And just that simple addition of true indicates there has to be something else that they would perhaps be considering. And one of the Old Testament illustrations that are, that's really heavily stated throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is Israel as a vine. Now, there's something very interesting about these illustrations. It's almost exclusively we see in these illustrations of Israel being a vine is first and foremost God's faithfulness, and secondly, a lack of actual fruit produced in national Israel's life. So just a couple of verses I'd like to highlight for you. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. And the whole premise here before we dive into that verse is to help us understand what is it that the disciples are considering. What are the apostles, as they hear the Lord Jesus say, I am the true vine, what's running through their minds? I mean, almost immediately in our context, we read, I am the true vine, and everyone thinks to their garden. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, clearly he's using this imagery, but we would do well to understand the imagery that the disciples are considering as Jesus is teaching them this. We need to go a little bit further past just the base illustration of, hey, we need to prune our our, our trees, we need to prune our gardens so ultimately they will grow and they will be healthy. It goes a little bit further than that. The whole premise here is that Jesus is a true and better something, that he is a true and better vine. So to understand the substance, it's important for us to understand the shadow. What is it in the Old Testament that leads us to more clearly understand Jesus as the true vine? Much like when we looked at passages like John chapter six, when Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven, immediately the, everyone, every Jewish individual in the crowd thought to what moment? They thought to the manna given in the wilderness. Even in the moment where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, they're considering this festival where there would be lights everywhere, that all of Jerusalem would be lit up. And Jesus is here saying, I am the light of the world. He's contrasting it. And so for us to accurately understand this, we must understand what he is contrasting it to. So Isaiah chapter five, verses one through four gives us great insight here. 
Listen, let me sing of my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So the first thing that I want us to understand is the faithfulness of God to this Old Testament idea, this Old Testament shadow. Now, just as a way of introduction and perhaps clarifying, this shadow that we are looking at is actually the nation of Israel. In a couple of places that we see that really clearly, Psalm chapter 80, verses 8 through 13, but really verse 8, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. The whole premise of what Jesus is articulating here is that there is an actuality, an Old Testament vine. There is an old vine that I would argue is all shadow and no substance. That national Israel was this vine that was brought out of Egypt, but even though God cared for it deeply, look at the language that we find again in Isaiah 5. He, found, he founded a vineyard on a very fertile hill, dug, dug it and cleared out its stones and planted it with choice vines. He even prepares a watchtower to watch over it. The whole idea is this, that there is an actuality, a vine in the Old Testament. This vine that we're considering is actually national Israel. Now, he goes on to say this about this, this uh, vineyard that he had prepared. He says, and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So the very interesting thing about this vine is it did not actually bring to fruition perfect fruit. It, bo- it perhaps bore some fruit, but not a genuine, not a real fruit. And so the whole premise here is that he prepared this, he worked for it, he gave them really every benefit that he could possibly give them. And what you find is still failure, still an an inability to produce genuine fruit. And listen to what Isaiah the prophet would continue and say, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? The whole premise here is that God had given all of these blessings, that he has done all of this work to prepare for them, to even give them everything such as what Paul would argue in Romans chapter three, he gave them the oracles of God, that they were the ones who were able to see the sacrificial system day in and day out. And ultimately this nation still produced wild fruit. It did not bear what was actually required of it. But then there's Psalm 80, verses eight through 13, and it says this, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed upon it. The whole premise here is that this vine that's being made reference to, national Israel, was ultimately something that the walls would begin to be broken down on and that it would actually be pillaged. But this is what's vitally important for us to understand. We're not looking back so that we can, so that we can disparage Israel. We're looking there so that we can see more clearly the beauty and the splendor of being united to the true and better vine. Consider for a moment the state of national Israel. All of these Beautiful things were given to them. The law of God, the tabernacle. They were the ones who were given the oracles of God. All of these things should be joys to them. They should be grace to them. And for many, they were. They looked into the shadows and saw the substance. They looked into the sacrificial system moments like the day of atonement and they considered that there's one coming who will ultimately deliver us. Even as they would begin to be brought out of Egypt, 
they knew there would be one who would deliver them all the better, all the more, something not just from a physical slavery, but something that was incredibly, I mean, all the more powerful, namely slavery to sin. And so they began to see these shadows and types and they rejoiced in them, looking forward to the true and better vine. The one that would, all of these benefits would actually flow from, not just the shadows. And so for us to understand this, we must understand the language. We must understand what the disciples are thinking through. They're thinking about the fact that they have been connected to a vine. What was the great boast of Paul when he gives his list of boasts? I'm a Jew of Jews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He's citing these things and he ultimately calls them what? Rubbish. Because the thing that actually produces fruit in an individual's life is not being connected to national Israel. It's being connected to the true and better vine, ultimately Christ. And so when we look at this, we need to understand that being connected to Christ is something infinitely better because it actually will produce fruit. Not wild grapes, but true grapes, the grapes that God has demanded from his people. And so let's just consider this for a moment, just to make perhaps my case. It's in Psalm Chapter 80, verse seven, it says this, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. And listen to what Hosea chapter 11, verse one says. Now, I would remind you that this is on the heels of chapter 10, which is this constant statement of Israel being this vine. And then he makes this statement in Hosea 11, one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then we see the apostle Matthew write this in regard to Jesus fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy when he was gone to Egypt as a child and then God brought him out. Matthew chapter two, verse 15 says this, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So the apostolic interpretation of Hosea 11.1 1 is that this is in fulfillment of Christ. Christ has done this, which means the way that we should understand Egypt being or Israel being brought out of Egypt is seeing that in full there was actually a true and better son, not like Israel that would fail and falter, but a perfect son who would actually perfectly fulfill all the oracles of God and all the laws of God. And so we can simply say this perhaps in summary, Jesus is God's true son that isn't wild, but perfect and perfectly produces fruit. He is the better son. He is the better Israel. He is the better vine. When we look to Jesus and we know that we are in him, ultimately what that means is his life then flows to us. It's not as though an individual claiming to be attached to national Israel then instantly begins to bear fruit, keeping with repentance. But those who are united to Christ will in actuality and will perfectly produce repentance. That's not because we are so excellent. It's because the vine is so good. It is because he actually does provide these things. Now, this leads us to hopefully understand that what Jesus is making reference to is not a gardening illustration, it's a union illustration. The whole premise here is that the saint understands that you are united in Christ, meaning that where he is, you are, meaning the life that you have is his, meaning that every benefit that comes to you ultimately from God flows from his good work. It flows from not only his good work, but his person. He is the righteous son of God. And by his righteousness, we then are brought into the family of God, united with him by faith. And then he goes on to say this. 
We'll come back to the idea of union with him. But he goes on to say this, and this is the unique portion of this I am statement because most of the I am statements don't jump quickly to the Father. They really do focus on the Son. But then you have the Lord Jesus make this very interesting statement. He says, I am the true vine, and then immediately jumps into what the Father is doing to this true vine. Notice the language. And my Father is the vine dresser. Now, when we understand this, we have to understand that it is the Father who cares for the Son. That when we look at this, I think immediately we, we, we place ourselves in this picture. Now, we should to some degree because we're united with Christ, but we have to understand that what the Father is doing is actually caring for the Son first and foremost. When we see this, you see Jesus say, I am the vine and my Father is tending to me. My Father is caring for me. My Father is working ultimately to bring about my health, my fruit. And so for us to understand really what's to come, we have to understand that what we see here is the vine dresser caring for the vine, the Father caring for the Son. That has to be paramount as we proceed here because Jesus is about to elaborate on what it actually looks like for, G- for the Father to care for the Son. And then we see how that benefits those who are in him. So let's look and consider. Verse two and three says this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now there's a couple of things I'd like to point out here. The first and foremost is this, that the vine dresser does one unique thing to call us to soberness. Notice the language in verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now this has been run rampant with in all types of false directions. The idea is for many that you can be united in Christ, that you can know him, that you can taste of his life, that you can know him as good, that you can experience all of the joys and benefits of being in Christ and then all of a sudden begin to fail to produce fruit. That is not the case see this vine dresser doing, what we see the father doing for the son is calling every branch to soberness. We should always be ready to take an account. We should always be ready to examine ourselves. And ultimately what I'm convinced that you see here is a very clear statement that we should be sober-minded in how we are living. Here's the deal. Anyone who is connected to the vine will in actuality bear fruit. The whole premise that's being made here is if you aren't bearing fruit, it perhaps indicates that you are not connected to the vine. The vine does not fail in causing the branches to produce fruit. The branches very likely may be laying near the vine, but but can be not attached to it. Friends, every single time we come to moments like this, I know that immediately we begin to consider the blessed doctrine of perseverance of the saints, and we should. We should understand that no one can pluck any saint from the Father's hand. We should look into passages like Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 that perhaps often cause us to tremble and actually experience what the author intended for us to experience, which is a bit of trembling. We should be comforted by the beauties of the gospel. We should be able to sing loudly, he will hold me fast. But nonetheless, we should never be opposed to examining ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. When we examine this, the whole premise is people who are connected to the vine, branches that are connected to the vine do bear fruit. And so perhaps what the Lord Jesus is looking at his people and saying is, are you, are you? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Are you bearing fruit in your love and affection for Christ? For if you are not, it is not an indication that the vine has failed. It is an indication that you are not connected to it. So brothers, sisters, and friends, we should do well to examine ourselves and to do so on the regular. Because every time we do, I believe that what we ultimately find, if we are in Christ, is the beauty and power of Christ to actually bear fruit in such wretched people's lives. 
And secondly, perhaps it will indicate and cause us to come on our knees to this true and better vine and long that we might be connected to it. There is never an error in the saint examining themselves. So he calls us to soberness. This is the intention of the, the vine dresser. He looks at them and says, every branch that is in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. But then he goes on to say this. He actually does in regard to every individual who bears fruit, causes it to bear more fruit. Notice the second half of verse two, and it says this, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, every time we come here, there are a couple things that I think are important for us to grasp. First, how sweet it is that saints bear fruit. When we come to passages like Ephesians chapter two, and we see that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and then you see the strength of this vine to actually produce fruit in dead men, that they might not bear just any fruit, that they might not bear wild grapes, but they will bear true grapes, that they will bear the fruit that the Lord God has intended for us to bear. This is the strength of the vine. That's the very first thing we should do when we examine ourselves and we're asking these questions, am I actually bearing fruit? Saying, if you are bearing fruit, understand that, that is, it is an impossibility that that flows from you. Meaning that if there is fruit evidenced in your life, if there's a love and affection for Jesus, if there's a longing for obedience unto him, if there is a steadfastness of seeking after the Lord because he is your joy and your delight, then we should be able to, with great joy, rest our head on our pillow and saying, yes, I am in Christ. And this should be to our great joy and to the praise of Jesus for he is producing this in us. And so we see that the first thing is that we actually are able to bear fruit. But he does not leave us in just a fruitful place, but longs to see all the more fruit produced in our lives. So notice a couple of passages that I think are, that I think are really important in light of this idea of pruning. Every branch that bears fruit, he will prune ultimately that they will produce more fruit. That's the whole premise here. So a couple of passages that I think are really important and one that I ultimately think is parallel. First Peter chapter one, verse six and eight says this, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Saint, do you want to know why we rejoice in pruning? Do you want to know why we rejoice in the midst of suffering? It isn't because we're, we're, we, we love suffering. It's because we love what it produces, that still to this day I am convinced that there is not a single thing on the planet that preaches the gospel better than a saint who suffers well. When we endure pain and suffering, when we endure moments of pruning, we rejoice in the fact that it will in actuality produce praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And saints, if your great delight is the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus, that it makes it rather easy to endure suffering because we love what it produces. That every time we see the Lord's pruning hand, we should first and foremost rejoice in the fact that it's evidence that there has been fruit in our lives and that there will be more. That God will be praised because of what he's doing in the life of his saints. This should be to the thrill of every saint because the glory of Christ is our great joy. But Hebrews chapter 12, I think, is parallel. Hebrews chapter 12 is articulating this idea of the father disciplining us. And ultimately what it's doing is legitimizing us as children because fathers discipline their children. It's a mark that they are actually his. 
And so let's look. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 through 11 says this. For they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplined us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Not only that, but for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, listen to what it produces. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Saint, what great God we have to prune us that we might actually, as this language would say, that we might share in holiness and that it might yield in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, let's be wise in understanding that this all flows from God and his act of pruning and ultimately our connection to the vine. And so what we have in the Lord and what he is doing, what the vine dresser is doing in the life of the vine is ultimately pruning the branches, caring for them that they might produce more fruit and making clear and evident that there are some that will be plucked because they were never actually a part from it. They were never actually a part of it. But then we see this very interesting statement that almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Look at verse four. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I mean, it's an odd interjection. We saw the Lord Jesus make reference to this in John chapter 13 after he washes their feet. And he pronounces them clean, all but one, namely Judas Iscariot. And it's important for us to understand that what Jesus is doing here is comforting his disciples by reminding them that their cleansing flows from him as does their fruit. The whole premise here, and I think that it could have even been misconstrued, that Jesus would be looking at his disciples and say, bear fruit and then you'll be a part of the vine. That's not what's being said here. What's being said is, if you are a part of the vine, you will bear fruit. And he is looking at his disciples and telling them, you are a part of me because I have made you a part of me. And since you are a part of the vine, since you've been united to the true and better vine, you're not united to Israel, the whole, the nation any longer. You're united to the true and better that will actually produce fruit in their life. D.A. Carson says it this way, the cleansing power of the word Jesus has spoken to his disciples Uh, then is equivalent to the life of the vine pulsating through the branches. What is meant is that Jesus is teaching in its entirety, including what what he is and what he does, has already taken hold in the life of these followers. Friends, we don't come here looking for, um, looking for Jesus then to unite us to him. We come knowing that he has united us to him. The whole premise is that if fruit is being produced, then we are in him and that we are actually in him. Now, when we come to this, I already said that it's kind of unique that we have Jesus say, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Well, why? Why does the father pluck and prune the vine? Remember, I said at the beginning that what we ultimately see here is the vine dresser is caring for the vine. The whole idea is that the father is caring for the son. So why is it that we see the father pluck and prune? Why is it that we see him actively involved in caring for this vine? The simple answer is to the glory of the Son. Why is it that the Father prunes? He ultimately prunes that there would be more fruit produced, that there would be more praise given to the vine. Why is it that he would remove those who would claim to be followers of Jesus and toss them into the fire? So that they would not bring reproach upon the name of Jesus. The whole idea is that the Father is caring for the glory of the Son. The Father is intimately involved in making sure that Christ receives all glory, praise, and honor. And that being the case, we as branches benefit. We as branches then experience the pruning of God that we might produce more fruit. We see this in a couple of ways, I think, practically. 
This is a reason why a church must be about and must be faithful to exercise church discipline. If we understand it rightly, we understand it as a means of God producing holiness in the body. And first and foremost, we see it as a means of pruning. That Should there be a, someone in our congregation who, does, who is living in a state of sin, we go to them and plead with them to repent because we desire that there might be much fruit produced in their life. But the last step of church discipline ultimately would remove someone from fellowship. The whole idea is to say that, friend, you are bringing reproach on the name of Christ. We cannot then look at you in light of the lack of fruit in your life, in light of no love for Jesus, no repentance of sin, and give you the mark of Christian. Instead, by God's grace, he prunes ultimately that perhaps he might see them actually come to faith genuinely that they might genuinely be united to the vine. And so why does the father pluck and prune? He does so to the glory of the son. The vine dresser is caring for the vine and we, its branches, benefit. We, its branches, experience the loving kindness of a father marking us as legitimate children because we are united in his perfect son. We have a glorious union with Christ. The union with Christ to such a degree that the Father would tend the branches because he loves the vine. This is the splendor of union with Christ. We will grow in holiness because the Lord Jesus will, because the Father will prune us for Jesus' sake. We will often have to deal with church discipline and things like that, but the whole idea is that we love those things because they produce holiness and they bring glory and honor to Jesus. And thus we have the vine dresser. Now, to progress a bit further, we want to look at verses 4 and 6 and kind of understand how this union with Christ works to some degree. Verses 4 through 6 says this, Abide in me and I in you. This is a command that the Lord Jesus gives. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There are a couple of observations I'd like to make from this text to kind of bring us home. First and foremost, Jesus reminds the disciples of their inability and need. Have you ever noticed, Saint, that as you progress in holiness, as you love the vine more, as you've seen and grown in your faith, you've all the more been aware of your inability. You've all the more been aware of your desperate need. There is no mark of Christian maturity that says, I am now sufficient. The mark of Christian maturity is knowing that you are insufficient altogether and you are in need of the life-giving source of the vine. And so Jesus then reminds even the disciples of this. Notice the language. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Understand, cannot means that we do not possess the ability. It is not in us. We don't have the power to do it. And Jesus looks at his disciples. And if there was any that would be able to muster this up in and of themselves, we would perhaps immediately give that title to the disciples. And Jesus looks at them specifically and says, you cannot do this. It is not in your power or ability. And in doing this, he is encouraging them all the more to abide in him. That command that he's given to abide in him, he is strengthening by arguing that if you don't do this, there cannot be fruit produced in your life. It will not happen. We are in need of an alien nourishment that we might actually produce some fruit. 
That leads us to understand a couple of more things. First, that all fruit that is produced is produced by the life-giving nourishment of the vine. That means that every blossom, that means that every moment that is something good and glorious that results in praise, honor, and glory to the name of Jesus is not born of us. Now, why do we need to drive that point home? Because we're so quick. We're so quick to abandon the vine. It almost is like we need to rehash Galatians 1. I'm shocked that you've abandoned the message so quickly. Brothers and sisters, how rapidly do we abandon the nourishment of the vine and still expect to bear fruit? Do we genuinely believe that we have the ability to produce that which is glorifying and honoring to the Lord Jesus? And if you, if you want to even give this a trial run, give it a shot. Give it a shot and see how rapidly we become carnal. That if we don't abide in Christ, we're able to produce things that honor him is the height of folly. The only means by which we will actually, the branches will actually produce any type of fruit is if God in his infinite grace gives us the life and, the, and the, everything we need necessary for actually producing it. Apart from being connected to the vine, there is no fruit to be produced. It cannot happen. But what then ultimately do we do? Because we know that a branch has to bear fruit. And if it doesn't bear fruit, then it will be tossed aside, ultimately to be thrown into the fire. Now, I want you to understand this because this is so lovely for us because the whole premise is that we can't do it, that there is no means for us to actually produce any type of fruit in our life. But then we see this language from our Lord. He says, looking at verse four, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Going on, I am the vine, you are the branches. Listen to this. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If there's fruit present in your life, it's because you're connected to the vine. It's so necessary that we understand our inability so that we might rightly understand the strength and power of Christ. That's the major issue. The reason that he drives this point home so clearly is because he needs his disciples to understand that you actually can't do this, but the power that I provide is perfectly efficient in doing so. It will bring it about. Every saint will produce fruit because the vine guarantees it, that all those who are connected to him will indeed blossom and bear the fruit that God desires for them, not wild grapes, but true, the good grapes that ultimately flow from him. Now that does lead us to a question, what does it mean to abide in him? If the whole premise here is that if you abide in me, that if you actually are connected to me, then you will produce fruit. But if you don't abide in me, then you can't produce fruit. So what is abiding? What actually does that look like in the life of the saint? Well, first and foremost, I would like to disconnect for just a moment the practice from the affections. Because this is important. We often deal with Christianity in a very practical and pragmatic way when I think that we would do well to understand it first and foremost as a religion of affections, meaning that to abide in Christ means to love him, means to see in him your great treasure, that all of your joy is in Christ. That is what it means to abide in him. It means to see in him all the splendorous things this world has to offer. That as we sang already, that you can take literally everything this world has to offer, all I ultimately need is my God, Christ, and the Spirit. And ultimately in him, there are all the joys that I can ultimately have. 
So for us to understand abiding, we must first understand affections and then understand practice. Because oftentimes we flip it and we make the practice the ultimate abiding and not the affections. And what you find there is normally a birthplace of legalism. Your whole concept of abiding is to do this, this, and this, and that's what it means to abide. Can I simply make an argument? There are people who claim the name of Jesus day in and day out. They read their Bibles probably more faithfully than we do, and they are lost altogether. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It's not the practice. There are people who would perhaps beat us in the way that we evangelize. They knock on your door. They give two years of their life to just evangelism. And they're lost altogether. They have a a, a fake Christ that will produce no genuine salvation in them. They study even the King James Version of the Bible and some additional stuff. It's not in practice. It's in affections. It's that we know him. It's that we know him and more importantly, that he knows us. The beauty is that if we're connected to the vine, what you will ultimately have is a dependence and reliance on him because he is our great affection. We know that life flows from him and thus we don't look for it anywhere else. He is our true source and that giving way to practice is lovely. But the other way around, it's an error altogether. It promotes a pharisaical Christianity that will not save, but to look at abiding rightly, to understand that it's birthed from love, that it's birthed from, it's birthed from the Spirit working and giving us life, then what we have is an abiding that is effective. Should we have an affection for Jesus, the true Jesus that we find in Scripture, and depend, rely on Him? It gives birth to practice. May I simply make a statement that there are believers all around the world who do not have a copy of God's Word, but do a very good job of abiding in Christ. Now, that is to say also that if they did have a copy of God's word, they would find themselves in it regularly. Abiding in Christ is firstborn of affections, but it does exercise itself in practice. When was the last time you paused and simply begged the Lord for a moment of just him? Or perhaps you've come to the scriptures and you find yourself reading through three chapters a day because you need to get through it in a year. When was the last time you abided there? that you rested in the glories of Christ, that you wrestled with him as Jacob did. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is what it means to abide, to seek him, to long for him, to look for him. We certainly are diligent in our practice and longing to abide in him. The desire of reading through your Bible in a year or whatever, all of that flows from a desire to know him. But brothers and sisters, abiding in him is a matter of the affections and it's certainly executed in a practice. We long to see Jesus and to depend and love and enjoy him. Saints, Christ is to be enjoyed. I think that is perhaps one of the great tragedies of Christendom is that we have stopped enjoying our true vine. We see him as something not to be enjoyed, perhaps even seeing him as just a God one that reigns tyrannically over us. But what we find in the book of Hosea is this sweet language of you will no longer call me my God, but you will call me my groom. Brothers and sisters, we are to see Christ as lovely, as our great joy, as the thing that we cherish most and the thing that we long for day in and day out. This is what it means to abide in Christ. But there's one final warning. I would point your attention to the end of verse six, or verse six in general. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
The issue is that oftentimes men long to enjoy Jesus because it means they will not be cast off and thrown into the fire. That is not genuine affection. Genuine affection looks to Jesus as your glorious joy. And certainly we go forth warning people that they will be cast into the fire, but how much more effective to say what sweet joy there is in Christ. That he, the God of the universe, would be willing to come, descend, die in our stead so that we might enjoy him forevermore. That those who were aliens might be grafted in. That those who were far off might be brought near. This is the splendor of union with Christ. He takes aliens. He takes not only aliens, but enemies and makes them his friends. And then provides for them everything necessary so that they might enjoy him all the more. Saints, we must be people who love Jesus. We must be people who certainly exercise practices that build in us a deeper affection for Christ, but make sure that the affection is actually present. And we must be people who go forth warning that there is a glorious vine that you can be united to. And certainly that should you not, do not be surprised when you are cast off and burned for that too is to the glory of the vine.